directly correct on the Alliance Podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, R.J. Milner. Uh, your gender looked awesome, but uh, it's good to catch up with both of you, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we, we co-presented at uh, one of like Rob Cross's uh, class classes he was hosting at Babson, what, probably like six months ago? That's the right. I saw you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, the, the, the O&A work you're doing at, AW, at Amazon was awesome, Scott. Uh, that's oh, thanks, man. Really thanks, man. Work. And there's a lot of stuff that I can't share either, which is really, really cool as and well. That's always the cool stuff. That's <laughs> always the coolest. <laughs> I'm trying to get some stuff published right now, and uh, hopefully it'll go through. We can talk about it on the pod. But yeah, we got some like really, really groundbreaking stuff uh, in the works. Uh, but uh, yeah, hopefully we can share it soon. That's super cool. Can you share what it's related to? Yeah, contagion, uh, contagious oh, nature awesome. of culture, specifically in a uh, hybrid context. Yeah, we were looking at contagion risk with attrition too. You know, early, I think for a lot of folks, attrition is less top of mind than it used to be, given the given the market. Uh, but I'd, I'd argue it, it maybe shouldn't be. There's kind of this latent attrition risk. Um, but we were looking at contagion it, uh, as it relates to attrition as well with, you know, uh, what happens when a peer leaves? What happens when there's attrition on teams? What happens when there's attrition with managers? And and O and A plays a, a pretty interesting role in that. When you can you can look at the knock on effects. Absolutely, there's definitely a spillover effect. Uh, I was finding that your risk of attrition goes up 85 percent for each person that you're connected to that has left the organization themselves. This is with some uh, active data I collected at a previous company, but uh, I still roll this out every so often like when rob cross asked for a presentation <laughs> dust off these old powerpoints <laughs> where is babson babson is in the outskirts of boston it is like oh, freaking okay. idyllic up there uh i flew up there probably like 2019 something like that and uh it's just absolutely gorgeous area he he, he lives a dream for sure yeah, I was just up there two weeks ago, not at Babson, but up in Boston uh, for the Insight 222 event. And Rob was up there talking. Um, and so we, we had a good time. Uh, it was a good time, but a lot of work around uh, the social connections and, uh, and collaboration overload, especially. Yes, yes. Uh, and I think that that's becoming like more and more uh, present as the pandemic goes on. We've seen sort of like fluctuations in how people approach the network. So like when the pandemic first and then the onset of the pandemic, everyone like rushed together, like, let's all meet, let's all get together, et cetera. Then you saw this like big decline in connectivity where you lost all these like uh, weak ties and bridges across groups. And now we're starting to see that a neighborhood effect. It'd be interesting to look at if you see, when you see bridging networks start to collapse or erode, do you see collaboration overload become more intense? And, and kind of the thesis on that would be, that as the as kind of the the networks become more dissipated, right? The bridging connections um, start to fall apart. Mm-hmm. The the requests for help start to collapse onto those central nodes, uh, and so the, the people that are used to leaning in to help start to le- have to lean in more to help. And if they're not predisposed to saying no for whatever reason, or for being more directive with their mm-hmm. leadership, they're, if they're trying to to be more Socratic, and uh, as leaders often do in trying to help people get to the right answer, uh, they're being pinged more and more and more because there aren't, there aren't those supporting networks around. Uh, and and talk, about, t- talk about turnover contagion at that point as well. It's like when this central node that's taking care of all this business uh, goes away, then that work spills over to the other people on the team, et cetera. Uh, you, you'll see this in, say, like call center workers, where if you become like a really, really good call center worker, Guess what? They're saying like, well, RJ, take this really difficult customer because you're really good. So these really good call center workers wind up taking the most difficult calls over and over and over. And talk about burnout at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you've you've heard me talk, Scott, before about my experience with call center workers and how it's the I, I think it's the job that should be paid the most in America. Like, like it's, it's the most yeah. stressful job where people just get on the phone and they just hate you from the first second and they're just so mean. It, I, I don't know how they do it. I have an anecdote about 
go into a call center we here i'll have to like, like cut this out but uh yeah i'll try i'll try and make it uh as uh make it vague uh, vague as possible there was an incident at a call center where they it's, talk about like it's it's as big as like five football fields just like absolutely massive space just cube farm like you wouldn't believe but they they had all these call center workers but they didn't know what to do with the it staff or like these like engineers etc so they, we'll put them in the same area so you got these kind of like low paid call center workers and high paid tech employees and to make it more like techie they put in like uh, a lounge area and a ping pong table and this sort of stuff but only the tech workers were allowed to use it so these lower paid call center workers are looking over at these high paid people sitting back in couches and hitting ping pongs back and forth while those are the podcasters collective winces across all three (laughs) of our faces i mean talk about just a terrible idea just a terrible look and of course like how do you think the call center workers reacted they said like fuck this place jesus christ yeah it's funny way back in the day this is like 2011 i actually ran a consulting practice for call centers so i was going to call centers quite often and looking at how do we measure productivity and well-being and these types of things and and uh, my other partners ran kind of the, the staffing side of that. So they ran a staffing agency that handled the uh, getting, getting the right people into call centers. And, more, and it's fascinating. It's an absolutely fascinating business. And the, the pressure is on time inside those call centers. Oh, yeah. You can't be understated. I was on a call recently with um, Josh Burson's group. So I, I helped lead the, one of their work streams around the big reset, which is a fantastic pro- project. We can talk more about it. but. Wonderful way to, to kind of learn about some of the drivers of an irresistible organization, and, and one of the one of the conversations right now we're having is around retention. And a topic came up was can we tap into call or or service centers and try to try to leverage that talent pool in other parts of the organization, which I think is a, a fantastic idea. Because mm-hmm. Scott, you're you're absolutely right. They they hear and see everything. But off, but also they tend to know our business and our customers incredibly well. And in some organizations, there's also some pretty Absolutely. significant technical talent inside the, those those service centers. And there's also they tend to be not always, but they tend to be some of our more diverse talent as well. So if we're thinking about you know, how do we accelerate career pipelines, how do we create more diverse talent pipelines? Accelerating talent out of call centers or service centers uh, can be a, a you know really interesting talent strategy. There, there doesn't seem to be a strong pipeline in a lot of organizations for uh, people to move up the ranks. Like, of course, there are some like BFOQs, et cetera, you need a degree in this sort of field, et cetera. But we don't, as a, I don't know, uh, industrial society, do a good job of lowering the ladder down. Because like, as you point out, talk about a person that's more in tune with the customer. There is no better person to go to for this information. and. These people are also performance managed to the nth degree. Like you mentioned the performance metrics associated with it. It's all time-based, how many calls per hour, et cetera. Like try to apply that at any other leveled organization. It'd be impossible. Yeah. Funny, it's just in, in a very small team. So for instance, when I was at Uber, um, uh, my people analytics team, which is you know, not huge, we hired someone uh, to be one of our project managers out of our uh, customer operations. Uh, out of the call centers out, and he's, he's based in Chicago. Wow. What a difference inside of our own internal team. So he started, started basically with customer engagement uh, and you know, handling the kind of the inbound requests and also helping engage our stakeholders on project requests and was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal mm-hmm. at that. And then expanded scope to managing our project queues and you know, going into Asana. <laughs> the team ran like clockwork and, he, and uh, you just took on more and more responsibility and, and is now on one of our research teams and in, in the people science team. So it's, it's wonderful, I think, to create those career, career options for folks coming out and then just watch them, watch them run and watch them grow. Well, would you say that like there's a essence of resilience there or grittiness or what, what are some of the transferable skills that you experienced that's a really good point, Cole, about grit and resilience. I think, Scott, it goes to your point, too, about how situations that they encounter and how they, how, how they address those situations, right? Uh, and I hadn't thought about that, but I think it's a really good point you're, you're bringing up, Cole. Uh, you know, I think the, the other 
the other thing that I noticed is that they, um, at least my own kind of my own limited experience is for the customer facing folks, they have a way of engaging with stakeholders and clients uh, in, a, in a way that gets to the gets to what the customer need is. And so it's it's actually it's actually less transactional, uh, in it, even though they, they could have been in what might be thought of as a transactional role, uh, but they're able to understand what does the customer need, how do we how do we fit that need, and then walk them through the cycle, walk them through the process. And it was uh, you know, for us the super powerful blend. So you have that resilience goal that you're talking about, also the customer engagement, um, and then the understanding of the process on the back end to be able to kind of walk the cut, the stakeholder in our case through the process, but then also to kind of help us match the process to their need. Yeah. I think yeah. about it like through the lens of emotional labor and then someone who's used to reading social cues and they've got one of the things that we've talked about before on here is just having the repetitions on something. Like if, if you're working with stakeholders, maybe you meet with them once a week, well, a person who works in a call center is meeting with somebody every 15 minutes or every 10 minutes. <laughs> and so they've just got yeah. the repetitions of being able to, you know, cut through the BS, let's call it, uh, and get to the point quite quickly. So I imagine that's a pretty, that, that, per, that person is probably a pretty sophisticated, you know, interpersonal user of the organization. Yeah, it kind of, it supercharges an area that I think a lot of people, analytics teams tend to be a little bit weaker in, uh, which is the understanding kind of the personal side of the request or or understanding the business side of the request so you know we can have teams that are supercharged on the data side right uh, and so you know outstanding in terms of data science or behavioral science they they got the quant side locked down but they may not understand the business side as much so how does this relate to a business need or how do i take the findings back and apply it to the business that's where we tend to build up the consulting arms of teams, or they may not understand the interpersonal cycle, kind of what you're getting to of, you know, how do we actually understand the need of the customer, um, get to that quickly, and then help walk them through the process and walk them through our intakes and, and, and uh, how we get something done together, which is, I think, where, where this strength is. And, and you know, we're seeing kind of the consulting or decision science arms of people analytics teams get more built up. Uh, but we still need some way that's a that's a little more personal than a Jira queue to get uh, to get requests kind of in and taken care of. I mean, I love that, and I do feel like Jira queues are pretty impersonal at times. So I, I, <laughs> nobody I feel likes that at a core. Yeah. So, like RJ, you've led several different people on like functions. Uh, is there a way around that? Is there a way to better align what people analytics does with the business need or those of the customers? Yeah, I, I think it does start at the top in some ways. And that sounds like a tight thing to say, uh, you know, almost cliched, but I think there's truth in it and that we need to understand what the business strategy is uh, and make sure yeah. we're tightly aligned to that, right? And, and there's probably some sort of 80-20 rule there too as well, where uh, if we understand what the organization strategy is, what the people function strategy is, and we try to stay tightly, tightly aligned to that, we also need to be aware of the variance. And the conversations that I've had with, with my teams in the past, whether it was Uber or McKesson or Chevron or elsewhere is, let's, let's be very aware of what our business strategy is, how talent strategy can enable that business strategy, whether it's making sure we've got the right people to execute that, or whether it's a more direct link to what the business is trying to achieve and, and achieve that business strategy, um, and make sure we've got the right capacity to achieve that, and that we're saying yes to the right requests, and frankly, we're saying no to the requests mm -hmm. that don't for that. But there's also an element of having connections to the business, whether it's business leaders or teams, chiefs of staff, for instance, to understand when you're going to kind of go off track, make sure those things count. Uh, so there might be something that doesn't seem like it's aligned to the overall corporate strategy, you know, the, kind of the top-down pyramid, but that thing that doesn't align is really darn important. Like that's, that's a, um, that's like a big bet that it's got a huge potential payoff or there's, there's something affecting culture on this that we really need to get to or whatever it is, like being able to have that contact. And I think that requires a degree of business acumen across the entire team, um, but it also requires having some link from the top down 
there's some connection to kind of the people leadership team or the executive team to understand, hey, what are our priorities? What are we really chasing? And enough of a tie-in to the rest of the business to have the context to know, hey, when do I need to take a flyer and go off of the things that, that are on our strategic priorities list? And the, the execution of that is really darn hard because yeah. we think about structuring a team yeah. regardless of size. If you've got five people or 50, you know, it's like, hey, do I, do I want to structure it in a more centralized way? In which case you kind of lose the context in the field. Do I want to structure it with more business partners? In which case I've got a lot of context in the field, but I, I risk going native for lack of better term. You know, I, I risk <laughs> working on a lot of mini projects and not mm-hmm. really focusing on things that matter most for scale across the enterprise. And, and striking that balance is really, really tough. Well, there's so much red meat in what you mentioned there, RJ, but one thing that really resonated with me having led people analytics functions in the past, and I've, I really personally you know, reflected and struggled on this some is what, what's, what's your, you know, codex for how you make those big bets? Like, how do you go about choosing where to do that? Because that seems to me to be a make or break decision that most people analytics teams go through. And what's your personal experience there been? Yeah. I, let me answer that. And then I'll, and I'll give a kind of add to it as well. Cause I think there's a, there's a balance between base business and big bets. Um, and sometimes we can get distracted by the big bets too. But let me answer the, the first one, Cole. It's a great question. You know, I try to look at it in terms of a, a bit of a matrix between what's the, what's the potential impact and also what's the feasibility or cost. And this kind of goes back to, to um, uh, years ago when I, when I was uh, working for an oil and gas company. But the, if I can think through you know, what, what are those big bets? What can we go chase? And there's all, the fun part about people analytics, I think, and what energizes me is that there's always so many of them and it's always changing, right? You know, so coming out of the oh, pandemic, yeah. there are a lot of ones we're looking at, you know, we can look at now in terms of how people work and where they work and how they connect. Scott, some of the things that you were just talking about um, from, from an O&A perspective. But if I think, I think, think about the big bets, I try to plot them with the team on what's the likely impact and you can define the impact in terms of productivity, business impact. I mean, do we have the links to profitability on these? Is there an impact on culture? Is there an impact on employee experience? What, what is this versus what's the, what's the feasibility? So is there a cost associated with this? Is there you know, third-party expense? Do we need additional tech? Do we need headcount for this? Is there, is there also a feasibility risk? Like this is, there's a one in 10 shot of this, the moonshot, or it's pretty highly likely, we just have to really pour into it. And you factor all that in on a bit of a frontier and you can start to, to make them a more educated bet on the big bets. Um, the, and we had a kind of a matrix for, for doing all those, of course, being an analytics team, we had a matrix for doing all those and I'm <laughs> them, putting ratings yes, in and, and over-engineering it as we will usually do. <laughs> um, but I think the, the thing I've been thinking more about recently is how do we actually temper ourselves in those big bets, because especially in a, uh, in a corporate environment, uh, we've got to think about base business and big bets. that we can't be all like all in on big bets, right? Uh, it's fun. Like, I think for, for a lot of us, that'd be a dream job of like, all chips in, big bets, let's go. Um, yeah. But then like the business doesn't get done and the business doesn't get taken care of. And that's, that's really rolling the dice. It, you know, if, one shot out of 10 or one shot out of 100 makes it. For a lot of, for most organizations, there's a healthy book of business that has to get done first. So of course, balancing that out of, okay, here's, here's the 80% of stuff or the 70 or whatever the number is that we really have to execute. You know, we've, we've got to get the HCM you know, implemented. We've got to build data dictionaries. We've got to make sure data security is set. We've got to do, got to do oh, all that's these boring things. stuff. We don't want that. All the unglamorous stuff, right? But it's all the stuff that <laughs> makes everything else happen. Uh, and then, Here's our 30% or 20 or whatever the number is that we're going to go and play with. Like this, these are our big bets and we can go big and bold in these things or whatever the organization will tolerate. Maybe we even push that limit a little bit. But uh, well, did, seeing- did you guys, have you guys seen this uh, Norm Core conference in machine learning that's come out? No. It, Norm no, Core? It's, yeah, it's, it's basically, I, I posted about it on LinkedIn the other day. We can include a link in the show notes, but it's a conference for machine learning. That's all to talk about non-sexy topics. 
And, <laughs> and so this like, is data I, cleaning. Yeah. This is. I want to I want to create one for people analytics just to talk about you know doing the basic book of business over here instead of just because that's all you see at conferences is the big bet conversations that are going on so I don't know I I feel like there's a, a latent market for this out there I love so, it it's so true for like grass students coming out it's like well I'm gonna be doing this like crazy machine learning or we're gonna do NLP it's like no you're doing data cleaning that's what you're doing ninety five percent of the time you get to press the uh, run button once and your data spit out and then you get to have that fun for that heartbeat yeah I, well, I, I don't know do we want to pivot a little bit just to talk about i think you had some thoughts rj on the return to office conversation and maybe some of the complexities around hybrid work um i don't know i i, I don't want to lead the witness too much here but uh <laughs> what, what's what's your perspective on what's going on in the return to office space yeah i think it's fascinating i actually think over the next two to five years, if not return to office, that's, that might be a, that might be what we're experiencing now. But the whole issue of how we help uh, employees work more effectively, and that it, that issue of work itself might be the most impactful area for people analytics. Uh, and so it's something I'm I'm super excited about. And you know, I think the first area where it's manifesting now is kind of where we work. And that's what we're that's what we're seeing and feeling now post pandemic, and we can kind of talk a little more about that with return to office. Um, but it also goes into how we collaborate, and you know, Cole and Scott, we were talking about this with with um, collaborative overload a little bit earlier, and and then also how we just manage workflows. But um, you know, if we think about kind of work from different work models um, in pandemic and post pandemic, so. So many of us went completely remote during the pandemic, right? Well, and, and there's eventually going to be a time where we're not talking about it being a post-pandemic period. There's just going to be the period that you're in. You know, yeah. it's like in, in return to office is going to be a word that's probably never used again in 2026. You know, so like these conversations have Normality. to have a sense of evergreenness to them. Can we agree to retire those along with like the great the great resignation or any <laughs> of those? That, maybe we can, that could be our New Year's resolution in 23. But the, um, yeah. you know, I, I, I think that's one of the things I find so interesting right now is that you, when, when we had this amazing kind of experiment where all of the, most of our workforces went fully remote, we're trying to understand what was happening. First off, we're trying to understand what's happening with our employees, ensuring first and foremost that they're safe and understanding their, their well-being. Like, are, are, they, are they thriving? Are they struggling? than what they needed. But after, after we went through those stages, we were trying to understand what's happening with their productivity, right? Um, and we saw productivity, most organizations saw productivity spike as employees were, uh, went home. Um, and now we're trying to understand, well, hey, what happens when we, when we bring them back and why do we bring them back? And they, um, what, what I've been noticing, I'd be interested to see, Cole, if you and, and Scott are seeing the same things, as employees are coming back into the office, we are seeing kind of marginal upticks uh, in things like engagement and belonging, for instance. Um, really no difference in productivity mm -hmm. between re remote and in office, but significant differences in network, network formation, right? Collaborators and strong collaborators. And so the, the thing that I'm trying to really dig into right now is Dig into this question around return to office and what seems that what so many companies are asking is okay so how many days back you know is it is it going to be yeah, five days back in the office is it two days back in the office is it you know specific days back in the office and i'm pushing back on that a bit i think it's the wrong question i don't think it's the number of days back in the office or specific days although that's a, that's a very comfortable question to ask, for folks to ask. It's, you know, it's formulaic. Everybody's on the same page. It's kind of an easy answer. But I think it's why and when are you coming back into the office? It's not, not how many days. Like, What type of work do you need to do and what work model or what location best suits that type of work? So going back to what I was just mentioning, people that are coming back in the office don't seem to be more productive, but they are de developing many much stronger networks. So Hey, if it's work that has to do with innovation, right? Or there's discovery work. 
a face-to-face -face model is going to benefit that type of work, right? If, if you're trying to, and you mentioned Michael Arena earlier, Scott, Michael's done such amazing work on this. Uh, you know, if you need to uh, build trust within or across teams, face-to-face, -face. if you're trying to influence a decision face-to-face, -face. Uh, but there's a lot of other work that goes to, that we do throughout the year that might not fit into that model. Absolutely. And so you don't need to be face-to-face -face for that. And so I, I think the number of days or specific days is, a, is an easy way to couch this issue, but it's, it might be the wrong question that we're asking. Yeah, Michael Arena was way ahead of the curve on this. It was two years ago. He was talking about uh, when to bring people back and why. In fact, he just recently published an article on uh, the phases of innovation and the sort of collaboration needs that are needed along with it. And you're also right that uh, I think there's a stat that 55% of employees feel lonely at home in a work from home environment. It makes sense. Like you log on in the morning, you don't necessarily really talk to anybody other than like little you know computer squares in your screen but they're also reluctant to come back to the office because they <laughs> they don't want to you know deal with the headache of travel and getting ready in the morning and this sort of stuff so it's kind of a conundrum people want choice but they also uh, uh kind of need it it's like for, for their own well-being of their own psyche they, they need these connections they need to know who they're working with um, well, and I, I had a conversation with uh, a person, I won't mention their name, but they're a virtual conference organizer. And they were talking about how they can't organize events anymore on Mondays or Fridays, just due to the hybrid work schedule <laughs> of most people. Um, and I said, well, why, what do you think those people are doing on Mondays and Fridays? And he, and he said, well, quiet quitting, of course. And I said, well, those folks are probably in for a rude awakening. And he was like, Ooh, I like this. And so we're actually talking about doing a, uh, like a writing an article and doing a speech together on quiet quitting or rude awakening what's coming. And again, I know I, that's another term I kind of want to sunset as the quiet quitting one, but it's like, what's going on in this space and how does it overlay with hybrid work? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of oh, well, please RJ. Yeah. I think one of the real challenges too is, is the coordination like oh, within yeah. teams and and also at what level of at what at what level are we doing the planning so what's the minimum level of analysis that we're looking at this because the um you know, i'll give you a personal example right and this is just me as a person when i go into the when i go into an office and it's buzzing i feel that and i get energized you know i, I feel the culture i feel the energy i'm bumping into people at the elevator like people i haven't seen before or the, or the coffee bar or whatever it is. And um, that kind of goes to the idea of discovery, right? And so I'm having conversations I wouldn't have planned. They weren't on the, they weren't on the Zoom calendar or yes. you know, on my calendar in the morning. There's an energy to that. At the same time, you know, there are other days I might go into the office and I've got you know, back-to-back meetings in a conference room on Zoom and I'm the only person in the conference room. And there is like no incremental benefit <laughs> of me going in. But I've spent the time commuting in and I've lost focus time as a result of that, which we've seen is very strongly related to productivity and also has knock-on effects of well-being and, and engagement as well. And so there's this balancing, uh, and intuitively, I think it makes sense, but there's this balancing of where do I go to get the right kind of work done? And it's probably not an all-in or all-out mode of work. So like, how do, I, how do I balance? I need to go into the office for this type of work versus maybe I don't need to be in the office today for this type of work, or um, it's a half day or that yeah. kind of thing. And it's a much more fluid thing that we need to trust our employees to be able to make that decision. But it's, um, it, I think it might require two things. One is giving employees the information to make that decision. Like, do they, are they aware of these kinds of relationships? But then also the tools, right? Like enabling them to be able to, to coordinate with each other. And that brings up that minimum level of analysis problem. And then a lot of times we're looking at this as kind of a top-down structure where the head of a business unit or maybe a head of a company says it's this many days a week, or it's these days that we're all coming in to collaborate. Well, it's really hard because the head of an organization, typically it's a large business, doesn't have visibility into the day-to-day -day operations of what's happening within a team. And it might be more effective for the, the teams themselves to say, okay, we need to come in on this day because here's the type of work that we're getting mm -hmm. done. But I think that just tactically, that coordination piece is, is, is going to be hard to, hard to solve. 
you know, I, I've, and the way I approach like productivity has largely been around like team-based communications and in, in the sense of like, how many people do you connect with on a daily basis, this sort of thing. And, you know, we, we find in the historical research is pretty clear that people can be like really productive remotely because, you know, you're coordinating with the same like five or six people. Um, but innovation is a kind of a different animal. There, there's new research coming out that's really fascinating that shows that like if you already know somebody, you can coordinate with them at a distance and still be really innovative. But it's really those new ideas that you can't get remotely. You can't just, I don't know, have like a, a chat roulette. Uh, <laughs> nice reference. Caller. Yeah, I mean, it's freaking 10 years old at this point. Like a chat roulette, like meeting scheduler with someone in the organization and expect that to really work. Um, but like, I know, RJ, you've done a ton of work on productivity, but like on the focus of like, the length of meetings and like how meetings are stacked and like when they're taking place. Uh, what, what can we take away from this sort of research? Anything yeah. that's uh, really uh, valuable to take away? Well, I'd, I'd love to get back to that chat roulette piece. Sure. That, that's, that's well, let's go, let's go straight there then. Well, let, let's go there and let me answer your question too. Cause it's sure. you a great question, Cole, but on, on the chat roulette, I totally see where you're going, going. And why do you think that doesn't work? Because that, that, that point about, Bridging networks now, bridging networks and bridging social capital eroded as people went remote, right? Um, and the impact it has on innovation. Like, I, I totally buy into that concept. Um, and just anecdotally, I can, I've seen and I can also imagine how those re reaching out like that virtually or over Zoom, it, it's less effective. But why do you think that is? Is it that? that there's less trust over a, over a virtual format? Do you think it's that people are just like, I got other stuff to do? Well, we, we um, talked about this, Scott, with Joy in the, the nerdery is there was some research that showed, and I'm going to butcher this, but I think it was like you had to have something like 15 virtual connections that e equivalent to the trust level of one in-person interaction. I don't know. Yeah. Do you remember that specifically, Scott? Yeah, yeah. That, that's a, uh, a study was actually published before the pandemic on uh, development of trust. And that's, it's directionally correct. I can't remember the exact number of uh, meetings it took, but it did take many more virtual collaborations to have this happen. I think there's also an element of homophily. You need to have some sort of connection with that person. You need to have some sort of uh, uh, common interest with that person for it to work. Otherwise people are like, I just got matched up with four people I have nothing in common with. I don't have anything to talk to them about. I'm not going to participate in this anymore. Kind of like the same if you walked into a bar, you're not going to connect with everyone there, but you might make a best friend eventually. Yeah. You know, the the yeah. idea of creating connections outside of, of like obvious paths of obvious connections is fascinating. Aaron Hurst is doing some really cool work creating connections around common values or common culture. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, there's, uh, I think we were talking about Rob Cross. Rob Cross is mentioning you know, how uh, how high performers tend to create more time for exploration, you know, creating, uh, exploring new contacts, exploring new work, and they always tend to give something back. And so it gives, you know, a little piece of research or whatever it might be after yes. that, that conversation. I think it's a great act. That's, you know, it's a great, great pro tip. Um, but, you know, you know, I love that point around trust in virtual modes of communication versus in-person modes of communication. It's an important thing to keep in mind, especially as we're in a more hybrid remote environment. Well, Scott, I don't think we about. actually answered your question though, RJ, which is like, what is the <laughs> human, the human element of like, why is it more difficult? I'll say for me personally, and again, I don't have research that's support this, but it's the lag. It's like in an in-person interaction, I never have to worry about there being a lag with me talking and then them talking and one of us talking over one another. But even with the best latency times, on computers, I always have to worry about it, even on this podcast. I'm not like trying to be rude, but I always end up talking over Scott or over the guest. And I wish I didn't, but I know it's largely technology driven. That's true. It, uh, pardon, RJ. I, I rudely interrupted you when you're about to answer the question about the meeting scheduling. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm fascinated in this, to in this topic and your, your perspectives on it because you, you've got some great guests and also you're just doing great work on your, your own on this. So I, I appreciate you you weighing in it's it's something i think we're going to be dealing with over the next several years and it gets to gets to important issues too around um 
just parity and, and equity, right, between in-person and, and, and remote employees. So uh, one, one topic that's been coming up in conversations quite a bit lately is proximity bias. So you know, how, do we, how do we try to manage for proximity bias uh, between folks that are remote and in-person? But I, Scott, I, the, um, the, I didn't mean to just throw that out there. We can chase that too. But Scott, you were asking me about um, <laughs> uh, like uh, productivity and meetings and the the PA team at Uber did some really, really great work on this. Um, there were two things that, that jumped out. One, and this is something we found late in 2000, and then we kept on investigating over time, was that uh, uh, we, we, first, we were trying to understand productivity, first off. And we were looking at business measures of productivity. So we've got a large engineering population, for instance, at Uber, and we we're looking at their product prod measures, but then also sales. Uh, it's a normal go-to, uh, you know, for productivity. Isn't the criterion problem across people analytics? Trying to find a measure of productivity is so hard. Oh, seriously, uh, it, it really is, especially in the the more corporate functions, right? Oh, yeah. So you know, sales is always the go-to because uh, it's a very clear measure of success, <laughs> whether it's you know uh, bookings or closed deals, and then you know, for folks of engineering functions that tends to be heavily measured. We mentioned call centers, another great one, oh, yeah. a highly measured function. But the corporate functions, HR, legal, marketing, finance, notoriously difficult. And one of the things that we found uh, as we were going through surveys and we had a monthly employee experience survey was that uh, self-reported productivity, we asked a series of questions around how productive do you feel? How effective do you feel at the moment? Those tracked extremely well to business measures of productivity. So when we were looking at closed deals, we were looking at end metrics, these types of things. And so we started to rely more and more on self-reported productivity as a metric of productivity that we could use across all the different functions. And that was a big aha moment for us. It was like, hey, we're going to continue looking at all these other areas of productivity that tend to be more specific to different functions or business units. But self-reported productivity, asking employees how productive they feel at least in aggregate, if not always specific to the individual, when we look at it across teams, it's a really good proxy, a really good measure. And then uh, what we started to look at was, well, hey, what else tracks to this? And what, is, what else does this relate to? And what we found was that focus time, so two or more hours of uninterrupted time that you can dedicate to a project or task, <laughs> was almost like, there's Go a figure. relationship. <laughs> I mean, I remember showing a chart at a, at a conference and it, it was almost like a joke. It's like a forty-five degree line uh, in, in terms of in terms of the relationship, and and so understanding this relationship, this this behavior between helping employees get more focus time, this kind of goes back to collaborative overload in the beginning of our conversation, and and productivity, and so we we kept on watching that for a little while, but then when to start what it kind of helped us kick off was a more intensive study on collaboration. So how do employees collaborate? How do they meet? What's our meeting culture? Um, and I think as we, as we talk about helping work get done better, so help, helping employees work more effectively in, in a way that helps them be more productive, but also encourages their own well-being right, at, at the same time, I think we're starting to key into kind of collaboration and meeting culture as, as, a, as a soft underbelly mm -hmm. in a lot of organizations. So, and, and if you pull together things like um, qualitative work, like diary studies and, and sentiment on surveys and things like ONA, whether active or passive, you can get some really interesting insights on that. So for instance, what, what types of meetings do we typically have? And for a lot of organizations, a good chunk of their meetings might be things like our, our all-time favorite, you know, status updates. Uh, well, of course, yes. Probably, probably a, you know, a pretty bad reason to have a meeting, to be quite honest. You know, if we're spending 30 minutes or an hour having status updates, that could be done async, um, you know, over Slack or in a deck you can comment on, uh, or in lightning rounds. You know, just five-minute updates for a quick stand-up doesn't have to be a 30-minute or hour or longer meeting. Um, similarly, we found, you know, how many meetings do we have that are large group meetings? And large group meetings, they're great for information dissemination. Uh, we can argue that of whether that needs to be a mm -hmm. meeting or, again, should be async but they're terrible for engagement and even worse for decision-making, right? And so as we were tracking things like distractions in meetings, which 
using passive ONA, you can, especially with with kind of experiment group, you can track and see, hey, are, you know, are, do people start sending emails or slacks or whatever it might be? We found that once groups get past eight engagement declines and once meetings get past around 30 minutes, about a hockey stick in terms of distract, meeting distraction, right? <laughs> so how, how do we shape meetings for the right purpose, but also the right size and the right time? And uh, findings like this, they can get us a lot more, uh, a lot more precise in terms of how, when, where do we collaborate and for what reasons? I, I, the people I talk to externally, I get the impression that meetings are becoming more bloated. More people are being invited. You're having more meetings. You have the pre-meeting to the meeting to then the post-meeting to talk about whatever. And in general, nothing really gets done. I, and that's, that's, that's a real problem for organizations for engagement. Like, oh, great. I have to attend another meeting that's going to mean nothing yeah it's just meeting theater you know productivity theater meeting theater i mean it's all it's all just trying to create you know the illusion of something happening but um i don't know what that with that yeah sorry i love the theater point cole i was talking to an hr executive a little while ago and and she said um you know it's the it's like meetings used to be the punctuation marks uh, in our workflow right you know we we needed to to you have a meeting to kick things off and the meetings throughout <laughs> then a meeting ended everything and i think if we can transition to the point of of meetings having a specific purpose you know and a, you know purpose agenda and outcome uh, that'll really help us on the journey to better collaboration there's also the element of like well we need uh, bob and sue in the meeting well we already got 10 people in this meeting Bob's not ready for another week so we got to push the meeting out a week then like sue she's on vacation so it's 2 weeks out then you get in those meetings and they don't say anything like they had no business being there. So now you're a month out. Nothing's happened. Anyway, incredible aside. You want to do some nerdery, Cole, RJ? Let's do some let's do some nerdery and let's Sounds let's get great. some RJ business in this. Yeah, no doubt. So because RJ, ONA guru is here. So I, I found this article and it's absolutely fascinating. It has some like great data viz, which really drew me in here around what diversity is, what inclusion is, what diversity with inclusion is. I haven't seen anything like this before, uh, but I was really drawn to it. But the the central thesis of this article is that diversity is really easy to measure. So we we got headcounts. We know how many male employees we have. We have how many Hispanic employees, et cetera. But that's not necessarily inclusion. And they have like a really great line in this article, which essentially says that uh, uh, diversity is being invited to the dance, but inclusion is being asked to dance which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, but it, typically, inclusion is measured through self-reports, you know, pulse surveys or engagement surveys, this sort of thing. Uh, but as mentioned earlier, uh, about 55% of work-from-home employees indicate that they're lonely. So are we having some sort of construct confusion with uh, inclusion here? But if you, if you use ONA, you can actually see the actual patterns of collaboration across employees. And they have like a really, really good succinct case study here that shows how ONA can be used to uncover uh, truths within the organization, such as, you know, are uh, Hispanic or Asian employees being left out of the decision-making po- uh, process or like do different genders have different orientations to their uh, uh, ability to uh, uh, contribute to the organization's good? And I, I, I think personally that diversity and inclusion is a absolutely wonderful use case for ONA, just specific, specifically because it relates so directly to the employee communication process. RJ, have you used any sort of ONA for DNI research? I, I love this article and I love this example, Scott. So we, we have not used this directly, but it's always been one of our, our potential use cases. I remember talking with Manish Gold about this back in 2017, 2018, because uh, he was doing some great work at Trustphere uh, on, on just this. And that's some really cool findings on, um, on differences in network formation by gender, actually. Uh, but this is, a, this is a fantastic, fantastic use case. And you're absolutely right. A lot of times when we look at diversity, we're measuring it in terms of representation, right? It, it's you know, per- percentages of our population that are mm-hmm. of, of a demographic. But we're not necessarily looking at how these groups uh, are working and collaborating with one another, which I think of as the yield of diversity. Uh, so if we're, we want to increase our representation, so we have different backgrounds and views. Uh, but if, if we have more like-to-like connections, 
or what this what this article describes as homophily, uh, then we're not really getting that full yield of the diversity that we're bringing into our organization. So network analytics is a fantastic way to understand that, whether it's active or passive network analytics, understand, hey, who are these groups that are coming, that, that are coming in? How are they building networks? And are we really getting kind of fully inclusive networks? Yes. Organization? Are we getting pockets of diversity? In, uh, these silos of, of, of groups within our organization, which is really not what we want. You could, you could have a, an increasingly diverse organization that's still not as inclusive as we want, uh, which is certainly one of our own objectives. I'll tell you one way that we have been thinking about this uh, is, and I have thought about this in other organizations, is to not only do this as, this is really kind of an assessment, right? It's, it's hey, how, how inclusive are we? One way to build this into an action is to say, build this into onboarding. So as an example, you know, we, at past organizations, we've seen that, uh, that new hires, uh, the faster we can help new hires build networks, if we can accelerate their network formation, those folks tend to be higher performers. Well, that's fantastic to do with every new hire as part of their onboarding yes. process. And you can use ONA as a really powerful tool to do that. But it can be especially powerful for diverse hires uh, to, to ensure that they're building their networks quickly, that we're giving them the best possible step towards high performance, but also to help build inclusivity inside the organization and, and to avoid having kind of like-like formations. And so uh, building, using ONA to help create kind of strong uh, networks across groups uh, for every hire, but, but especially for diverse hires, I think is a it's a fantastic use case. Well, and, and just to jump in here, and by the way, for the audience, this article is called The Role of Social Capital in Unveiling Inclusion Dynamic. That's I mean, probably we'll important, to, in, important yeah. to mention, yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, Thanks, we'll tag it in the show notes for <laughs> listeners. But I think the thing that's interesting about this that I hadn't even really thought of until I read the article, which is when, when you're looking at diversity numbers, you're thinking about things like it's diversity in hiring or diversity in your human capital management system. And then another measure would be like inclusion, and it's over here in your survey database. But if you try to like mesh those two things together, they won't work without something like ONA. ONA is the third leg of the stool that you can't see if there is just groupings or clumps of people who aren't interacting with others without that type of, of data that's necessary. And so that was kind of the light bulb that went off for me that I hadn't even really considered before. I, I like our, our, oh, sorry, I was gonna say, I like RJ's point around about building in the diversity from the very beginning, from the onboarding process, because those connections that you make early on, you remember those very, very well. They become your go-to network. Pardon, RJ, please continue. Yeah, no, it's the thing I would, uh, that I'd love to add on top of this is belonging, right? So you, we have the diversity, which mm -hmm. is what is, what are the what are the kind of proportions of our workforce? What's what's the representation in our workforce? And then we're understanding inclusion. So, you know, how how are these groups interacting with one another? How are they building networks? How are how are they collaborating together? Um, the thing that would be fascinating to add on top of this is a sense of belonging, or how st the stickiness between those individuals and groups and the organization and its culture. And I think that you know if you add that that third layer of belonging. You can really understand the impact that inclusion has uh, to the organization. That, that's the affective commitment that people have to the organization that you really strive for. Absolutely. Well, I don't know, Scott, do you want to pivot uh, to the next nerdery topic? Uh, absolutely. This isn't really uh, a major thing, but um, let's see. Matt Doncho uh, has listed the skills that are needed for a data scientist, or at least aspiring data scientist. If you read his article, he talks about like these sort of skills. He got machine learning, data viz, data wrangling, data processing, time series forecasting, text, NLP, et cetera. Uh, these sort of skills, if you know them, then you can essentially increase your salary by uh, you know, $60,000, $80,000 a year. And like Cold, I've talked about this in the past. Like if you know the 10 basic commands of the DeepFire package in R, you can go out and get yourself an $80,000 a year job no problem. If you know how to run stats and do that, it's like a $100,000 a year job. And if you know what those stats mean, that's like a $120,000 a year job. Yeah. 
And that's why I'm I'm still hanging around the eighty thousand dollar a year job territory <laughs> right now. But uh, I'm still still trying to figure it out. I don't know, and RJ, from your experience, because you've probably hired quite a few data scientists in your career. Are there any competencies or skills that really stand out to you as differentiators or something that someone should be focusing on? Yeah, I, I love this list. And you know, there's deep down in the art. So it, it's a very it's a structured list breaking down the, the specific skills. Um, and there are some in here that, that you know, I, was, I was looking at and thinking, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, right. And actually, if you dig into the article, there's a, a really nice comparison of Python and R, which I thought was really useful. Uh, so I, I would I would bring that up in terms of if you had to learn one language, which one would you choose and for what reason, you know, R being more of the kind of statistical pack uh, and you know, Python being more toward uh, machine and deep learning. Um, but there are reasons to use both. And so, you know, which arrow do you pull out of the quiver and, and which which would you choose? So I thought that was super useful. The, we actually uh, did a rapid fire last week, RJ where we incorporated one of the rapid fire questions was Python versus R. Like, what do you choose if you can only choose one? I don't know. Do you want to Where'd answer land? that? Yeah. <laughs> Where'd you land on that? Do you remember? Well, I, we both chose R. And the person that we interviewed, this the episode hasn't been released yet, but uh, <laughs> they chose, uh, they, they, they pulled a wild card and they chose Power BI, I oh, think. A yeah. Tableau, Tableau, I believe. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, and it's we we talked to Keith McNulty too, who uh, plays in both arenas, and like his opinion is essentially like it depends on the use of it, right? So like yeah. certain things are better for R, certain things are better for Python. Uh, but like getting back to this list, like this, if you just think like, well, I want to go be a data scientist, that seems pretty freaking daunting. But this gives you specific directions, like if you know like a bit of syntax from each of these, which isn't that much, you know. Uh, you can really make a career for yourself. Very lucrative career. I like how this yeah. charts a course. Like if you have if you have X amount of time, six months or whatever the time might be, or less, mm -hmm. it, it, it charts a course of how to get there. Because I think that's often the hardest part is someone says, hey, I, I've talked to HR business partners before. For instance, they've said, hey, I really want to get into data science. How do I do it? And you know, other than putting them into a, a program or like a, when I was, corporations off for a 101 like from the data science teams it's hard to give them a structured path and this is a bit of a structured path and there's a lot of value in that and one of the questions you asked me was well hey what skill would i add it's actually not the technical skill right mm -hmm. and so the, the one thing i would say is for people aspiring to be great data scientists i think there's the technical path and this is a really really good list the thing that i often i have found most missing among great data science hires is now explains to someone and non-technical terms, right? And, and that is kind of a good to great differentiator. Maybe not for all data science positions. There, there, there are a plentitude of positions that are, there are fantastic positions that are data scientists that are doing the core work, right? But then when you need to engage with another decision maker or stakeholder, how do you, especially in people analytics, if we're talking about this particular area, how do you then transition that to here's, Here's what we found and what it means. That sometimes is a is a hard pivot. So RJ, I have like a bit of a personal question here. Like we, we both know people in the same circles, etc. And uh, like when people that I talk to describe you, first they say like super smart, like great, great leader, etc. But awesome like hair. probably awesome hair, <laughs> super handsome. Um, but like probably the most unique identifier I've ever heard from anyone. Uh, is, is applied to you quite often is that RJ has executive presence. He looks the part, he sounds the part. Is that something that you work on? Is that something that you were mentored or is, is it natural? Do you have a philosophy? All this sort of stuff. Well, first, thank you. That's very, that's very kind of you, Scott. Uh, I, we talked about reps earlier, like in the, in the context of call centers. Yeah. I think it's reps. Right. Um, there's some people that are naturally gifted at it. I had the pleasure of working with many of them at corporate executive board back in the day, like in the, in the early 2000s. Um, but I, th I think it just comes from being in that situation a lot of times uh, and, and going through the repetitions. Now, part of it is 
basically having a degree of business acumen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from in my background, I was an investment banker first, then I was in consulting for a while. And so it's, it, it's helpful to kind of think things, think in, in that kind of mindset of, hey, where have, I, where have I seen this before? How does this relate to the business? But um, one of the, the most valuable things that, uh, that I've done in my career was having to, to stand up and give presentations to executives. This is when I was at Corporate Executive Board and then get feedback on it. And I'll tell you, mm-hmm. it's one of the most humbling things <laughs> when you're standing or when you have to kind of read through a piece of research, think through how you're going to deliver that, write a script, and then do that for 20 other people whose profession is to give presentations and then get politely torn apart. <laughs> and that is a very, very humbling experience. But wow, is it a great one in terms of thinking through, hey, how, how would I think through this issue? You know, how would I frame it? How would I communicate it? And then even down to the specifics, um, which I'm, I was much better at back in the day when I was, when I was communicating you know, more, more professionally, but down to the, the specific you know, pieces of feedback on how to do it. I think that was, that was very useful for, in my own development. Iron well, thank goodness. Yeah. Thank goodness our audience doesn't give us a whole bunch of feedback because I, I think Scott and I would be crying all the time. <laughs> <laughs> iron sharpens iron, you know? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, we, we did have uh, one more article here to talk about, but I, I want to kind of brush through it quickly. This was, uh, it, it's called the, um, the Illusion of Multitasking and its Positive Effect on Performance. It, basically, the thesis of the article is, People can't multitask, but if you tell them they're multitasking, they'll be more productive and more engaged just because you told them they were multitasking, which I thought was absolutely <laughs> hilarious as a human being who can't multitask to save his life. So I, I don't know, Scott, any, any thoughts here on this article? Uh, like As we point out, like you're not really multitasking. You're just switching super quickly between different tasks. Uh, it, it, we see the same thing like if, if you're in the car and like you're like trying to concentrate real hard you like turn the radio down because you can't have that like sort of external influence right uh but I, if you're talking like from a work from home perspective like there just seems like there's so many more distractions uh that would cause you to quote unquote multitask or at least switch your attention which you know people claim that they're more productive at the house but is it just because they spend more time not just because they and focus better? I don't know. And one of the things I found interesting on this was a line in the article talking about that just creating the perception of a special challenge helps, helps employees perform better or finish strong. I was thinking, gosh, that, that just feels like coaching. It feels like, <laughs> it feels like athletics. You know, like you go to the gym and there's a, like a gym class and the trainer's yelling to finish strong or you're on a team. Um, and so it makes makes a little bit of sense. Like it just it gives somebody this mental uh, mental hill to overcome. But I also wonder how many times you can push that button <laughs> before it yes. before people come immune to it. What also made me think of like Robert Cialdini's work on influence and how basically I, I always think about his work as sort of like magicians make your mind believe one thing that's not actually true. It's sort of like that in this space as well. Um, I don't know, but. I think we're about to wrap up here, RJ. I did want to ask kind of the the million dollar question, and and you can feel free to say, Cole, you can shove this. But where are you going next, man? I think the world. (laughs) We are so excited. I I will. I will let you know in the beginning of next year, uh, and so I'll have have something to announce uh, either very shortly or the beginning of, of next year. Right now, I am actually doing something I haven't done in about a decade, which is take some time off. Uh, and, and connect with yeah. the family and and uh, my community here in in Miami, and so I'm really really enjoying that. Uh, and then also doing a little bit of advising for early stage founders, uh, which is also really fun and personally rewarding. But uh, stay tuned; I have, I have something to share with you in a little bit. Awesome. Well, uh, I don't know, Scott. Any any final words before we wrap this thing up? Uh, I always love talking to RJ and uh, I hope you have fun at the beach today while I'm here in Seattle and it's like 35 degrees or whatever it is. Come on down. Yeah. There's plenty of room in Miami. Okay. <laughs> Be there shortly. We may take you up on it. Well, you've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Cole and Scott. RJ Milner, thank you so much for being our guest.
Guys, it was a pleasure. I had so much fun. Thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. As always, all opinions are our own and do not reflect those of any other organization.